Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 6 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. To keep up to date with news on the podcast, you can find us on social media through Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. For ad-free versions of our episodes which are posted before their general release, visit patreon.com forward slash they walk among us. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. She went to the till. The customers wanted to buy a few pork pies and some beer. It was not unusual to have a group of men in their early twenties popping into the caravan park shop to stock up on snacks and supplies. One of the men reached into his pocket to get out the money to pay. He poured at a wedge of ten-pound notes. 
the cashier noticed a large gold ring on one of his fingers and saw what she thought was blood above his knuckles. Maybe he had been fighting. The cashier then glanced up. There was no break in their polite conversation. The customer had not noticed her looking, or perhaps the shopper did not even know his hand was bloody. The men left and got into a waiting taxi and were chauffeured off-site. The cashier put the interaction to the back of her mind and continued with her duties. Crammed with essentials, the small shop in the Sutton Springs Caravan Park was the nearest place for pensioner Zena Dawson to grab a few necessities as and when she needed them. Casual business from locals in the village would help with costs when the visits from tourists staying in Trustthorpe, Lincolnshire, would start to wane in the off-season. The picturesque sandy beach nearby at Sutton-on-Sea would attract thousands of visitors, so much so the park still exists to this day. Hundreds of caravan owners come back and stay every year. In 1985, Zena Dawson, born on October 8, 1912, had grown frail. In her early 70s, she wanted a slower pace of life. The people she encountered were mainly passing through, taking a caravan holiday and enjoying the British coastline. Zena's home, The Rest, was sandwiched between several popular holiday destinations. Trustthorpe, a small coastal village, was nearby and linked to Mablethorpe, a seaside town which offers traditional seaside donkey rides, ice cream and fairground rides for children. The coastline holiday parks and villages were frequently crammed full of happy visitors. Zena would take the items she had bought from the shop in Sutton Springs Caravan Park and shuffle home unnoticed. Short in height, under five feet tall and very petite in build, Zena did not seem like she wanted to talk to the few people she came across. Human interaction seemed like an unpleasant necessity to get the thing she wanted. Zena managed to reduce the need to leave the house with home deliveries. The butcher would drop off meat and she would sometimes come to the door to pay him. Payment for milk, which was delivered a couple of times a week, was due once a fortnight. Instead of greeting the milkman, Zena left some cash on the doorstep in an envelope. A kindly staff member at the local post office noticed Zena had stopped coming in to collect her pension. The worker would put the cash through Zena's letterbox on their way home. Zena Dawson had lived alone in the rest for decades. 
but she had not always had such a solitary life. Zena had siblings, sisters. When they were young, they all lived together, but when they came of age, the Dawson sisters married and moved out of the family home. Zena was the only one left. As their mother's health began to fail, Zena remained working as an unpaid carer until her mother passed away in the 1950s, when Zena was 40. For the first time, Zena was living alone. The years passed and she stayed in the house seeing less and less of her sisters. They had witnessed a decline in Zena's mental health on the odd occasion when they did see her. By the time she was 72, Zena, her full name Zenobia Elizabeth Dawson, was all but cut off from the outside world. Zenobia was a name of Greek origin, meaning force of Zeus, and had historical roots. It was the name of a third century queen of Palmyra. However, the life of Zenobia or Zena, as she preferred to be known, was far from that of a queen. And so was her death. News travels fast in small towns and villages. On Wednesday, August 21st, 1985, some police officers pulled up to the semi-detached house with a bright blue wooden fence and overgrown trees that shielded the front room window. The press were already there. A white plastic bag containing some meat from the butchers and some untouched milk bottles were positioned directly outside the white front door. When the officers entered Zena Dawson's home, there was initially some confusion. The house was in disarray. It was unclear if the pensioner's killer or killers had created the mess while perhaps looking for something, ransacking the property for valuables. Or another possibility. Zena's home had not been kept in order due to its owner's declining age and health. On closer inspection, it seemed like the latter was more accurate. It looked as if Zena Dawson had reached a point in life where she was struggling with daily tasks. Dirty tea towels and rags hung all around the kitchen and pantry. All of the worktop space was cluttered with open jars, tins of fruit and packaging. Plates and bowls with old dried food stuck to them sat amongst cellophane and cardboard. Pots and pans filled the cooktop where dishes and bottles balanced precariously on a rack above. A bottle of fairy washing up liquid sat beside the sink, near a carton of Ajax powdered bleach. Hints of a life the 72-year-old had lived were visible amongst the clutter. White and blue plates with an elegant pattern were tilted against the wall in the pantry with a matching sandwich platter, most likely only used when the rest received visitors. But those days had long since passed. Stacks of leaflets had been pushed through the letterbox, 
left for a significant period of time. They had a permanent home, covering the entrance of the house and half of the hallway. An old manual push-along lawnmower was found on top of the leaflets, which would later become relevant when officers took statements from neighbours. The living room was perhaps the most challenging area to examine. Because of the mess, it was impossible to tell if whoever killed Zena had turned that room over. It was apparent that the fireplace had been covered over with a sheet, seemingly to keep the draft out, but this also meant the fire was disused and the pensioner did not have central heating within the house. A clock, porcelain figurines and a plastic snow globe were perched on top of the cream-cracked tiles of the fireplace. The entire room filled waist-high with garments, blankets, unused furniture and boxes. Seaside towns were their playground, where the elderly flock to bungalow homes retiring in quiet neighbourhoods near the beach. The caravan parks were often familiar places where fellow travellers had also parked up. When they had exhausted one town of its vulnerable prey, they would move on to another location usually before they were caught. Some constabularies were just glad to see the back of the men and did not give chase. Other police forces put the pieces together and went looking for them. The travelling community were loyal, and although few were aware of what was going on, no one was willing to provide the authorities with any information about people staying in their camp. They frequently felt persecuted for their way of life, and there had always been a sense of animosity with the police. Constabularies up and down the country often sought this small crime gang for fighting or occasional burglary, which was how they funded their lifestyle. When they needed some additional finances for any number of trivial reasons, like funding a night out on the town, the gang would have already found their mark, discovered while touting a carpet-fitting service to unsuspecting pensioners. There was a house and a resident they had already cased out, knowing they would be the perfect target to steal from. On the days they took a book of carpet samples cold-calling door-to-door, they would find out where the elderly, infirm or vulnerable people lived alone. Zena Dawson's older sibling left the awful task of identifying her sister's beaten body to her son, Zena's nephew. When Zena's body had been discovered downstairs in her home, the first doctor's initial assessment concluded that she had been killed approximately 12 hours before his examination. However, the body was examined a second time by Home Office pathologist Professor Alan Usher, 
He disagreed with the initial assessment made by the local physician. Dr. Usher instead theorised that the pensioner could have been dead for up to two days, although he concluded it was more than likely 36 hours. Zena Dawson's shocking death left a tragic cloud hanging over the investigation. The Lincolnshire Constabulary wanted to distribute flyers throughout the nearby holiday parks and to local residents. They hoped to jog the memory of potential witnesses to identify when the pensioner was last seen and learn if anyone had noticed anything suspicious in the area at the time. The issue the officers encountered was that after Zena was attacked, her face was unrecognisable. They could find no recent photographs of her. Just knowing what she looked like in the last few years of her life was going to be problematic. If they wanted to produce a flyer, the only picture they had was taken two decades earlier. In the grainy image from the 1960s, Zena is not the focal point as she was pictured with others. Nonetheless, it was the best likeness available, and it formed the basis from which, along with direction from her sisters, officers could construct an image of what Zena Dawson looked like before she was murdered. A sketch artist produced a portrait as best he could, and it was this image that was used on the flyers and in press material. The artist John Ravencroft drew Zena with fine short hair, hollow cheeks and large sad eyes. Her outfit mirrored the same one she was found in when she was killed. Police had given Ravencroft a sample of fabric to interpret the pattern onto paper. Perhaps purchased in the 1960s or 70s, the below-the-knee-length dress had a bold orange and blue floral design. Zena was shown in blue tights and slip-on shoes. Her posture was drawn to highlight her age. She was bent forward. Before her death, neighbours had claimed to have seen Zena mowing her lawn. They gave the day as Tuesday because they remembered there had been some rain that day. Witnesses described what she was wearing, a woolen hat she tended to wear outside all year round. One person the police were eager to talk to was a youth in a white baseball cap with a prominent peak. A witness claimed to have seen the young man in Zena Dawson's back garden. They named one of the three days when this might have been. Sunday, Monday or Tuesday, but they could be more specific with a time, 9pm. The young male left the garden and ran into the Sutton Springs caravan site. Frustratingly, this lead went nowhere. The young man could not be traced, and after a couple of days it was concluded to be a false sighting.
The case of Zena Dawson's murder was televised on a short unsolved crime reconstruction program called Police 5. Relayed by a host and actors, the show ran between other scheduled content for just five minutes, offering only a small amount of information about the crime. Investigators were quick off the mark in getting Zena's case out into the public domain. The programme was filmed within a day and aired a week after her murder. The host pleaded for information and provided a hotline number. They highlighted how defenceless the elderly victim was and how callous the killer or killers were. It was a case with no viable leads in an area with more holiday makers than permanent residents. The inquiry was not going to be easy. However, the televised appeal on Police 5 prompted someone to call with a promising lead. They had seen the reenactment on television and felt compelled to relay information thought to be essential to the case. The caller, a young woman who refused to give her name, said she knew who had killed Zena Dawson. She remarked, like herself, the men were from the travelling community. She had been aware they stole from some elderly victims when they would cold call at their homes. But the murder of a defenceless old lady was too much, and it appalled her. It took a while for the officer to coax the information out of the caller, but she finally gave the names of the three men. James Winter, Guy Moore and Jacob O'Neill. The voice on the other end of the line also told the officer where the suspects might be. The mystery caller hung up and never got in touch again, despite police appeals for her to call back. Unbeknownst to the caller, Detectives were already searching for three men. A conversation with the cashier at the Sutton Springs Caravan Park shop had proved promising. Florence Brown had remembered three men purchasing pork pies and beer. Before they left, the men had used a payphone located outside to call the taxi. Florence made a mental note of the blood on one of their hands. Over the next few weeks, James Patrick Winter, 27, Guy Anthony Moore, 25, Jacob O'Neill, 23, and two other men were arrested at campsites across the country. James Winter was already a wanted man. He had neglected to return to court for sentencing for burglary offences. So what happened to Zena Dawson? The five men had bundled into an old, extremely cheap rented car. They planned on spending the weekend partying in Skegness, But there was a problem. 
they did not have any money. Although the car occasionally broke down on the journey, they arrived at their destination. Their first stop was a house, the home of another pensioner that they had cased out. It had previously been tagged for a robbery at a later date. The men broke in. Thankfully, the occupant was out. In a drawer, they found £500 in cash and then fled. Their party was funded, but £500 then, an equivalent value to three times that amount today, did not go far. It only lasted the evening, paying for taxis, alcohol and a hotel. Although they had had a big night out, they woke up the following day eager to do it again. They knew exactly what to do to find some more money. One of the men recalled, when he had been knocking on doors selling carpet, a little old lady who appeared to live on her own. The property was around 15 miles away. The gang initially went into the nearby town of Mablethorpe, having some drinks in a couple of pubs to quell their hangovers and perhaps to gain some courage, before heading to Zena Dawson's home. Their two unnamed accomplices stayed in the car, while James Winter, Guy Moore and Jacob O'Neill approached the house. They knocked and waited but it appeared the pensioner was not home. The back garden was easy to access. The gate was missing. They walked into the garden. One of the gang peered in through the kitchen window and saw no movement. The trio wanted to get inside and so tried to smash the window with a brick. They were hoping to get in and get out just like the day before, a wedge of cash in hand ready to enjoy a night out drinking. But this time it was different. A voice called from a window in an upstairs bedroom. The owner wanted to know what they were doing. Instead of cutting their losses and leaving, they hung around using their salesman charm to convince the elderly lady they were from the double glazing company and were there to check her windows. Their attempt to smash their way in had been unsuccessful. Zena had the windows replaced a few years before. Perhaps it was a surprise to the men new glass had been installed, in contrast to the rest of the old house. They needed the pensioner to let them in, and unfortunately they convinced her to unbolt the front door. That was it. The men barged in, tied Zena up and turned over the house. At some point during the course of the robbery, Zena Dawson was beaten to death. How exactly the events unfolded, only the killers know. It is unclear if Zena Dawson died from her injury straight away, or if she was left to die while the culprits went out drinking, 
paid for by their spoils. The gang had searched the pensioners' house for money, valuables, anything of worth they could steal. They managed to gather £300 likely from Zena's unspent pension and a single gold chain. They missed £100 that was concealed beneath a rug under her body. The gang had stolen less money than the day before, but this time their crime was far more severe than burglary. They had committed murder. They fled the house and went to a nearby caravan park to pick up some supplies before getting a taxi to enjoy a night out. That's where the member of staff from the shop in Sutton Springs Caravan Park saw one of them with a small amount of blood on their hand. Other witnesses confirmed seeing them in pubs throughout Mablethorpe earlier that day. After they left the shop, the taxi transported them almost 30 miles away. They went to a club and when they became hungry, they took another cab to Derby for dinner in a Chinese restaurant. The journey was some 97 miles. They ended their travels by getting a third taxi, this time to Stoke-on-Trent. Maybe they thought they had gone far enough and changed taxis enough not to be caught. James Winter, who was seen with blood on his knuckles, returned home to Doncaster and then travelled to London with an unnamed man. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Nottingham High Court Late June 1986 Ten months had passed. James Winter and Guy Moore gave their address as Willow Bridge Caravan Site in Doncaster. The female who had called the police station identifying the suspects was also from Doncaster. Jacob O'Neill gave no fixed address, though it was thought before his arrest he resided at a separate caravan site. All three defendants denied murder. Detective Sergeant Joseph Jackson took to the stand to describe to the court the condition that Zena's body was found in. She was discovered downstairs. A blanket had been used to tie her frail legs to a wooden bedpost. Her arms tied limp across her chest. The jury were told it was entirely unnecessary considering her age, health and strength compared to the three fit and healthy young men in their twenties who wanted to steal her possessions. Around Zena Dawson's neck a rag was tied. It appeared to have been used as a ligature. A second piece of cloth also found bunched up around her neck was used as a gag. Zena's blood-stained clothing was shown to the court. Acting for the Crown, Timothy Barnes QC said, She was brutally beaten to death. She was repeatedly struck about the face and body, and her face and head came in for considerable punishment. Florence Brown, the cashier at Sutton Springs Caravan Park, testified of her experience with the men the day it was thought Zena Dawson was killed. She also told the court about the demeanour of the defendants when they were in her shop. The witness said they were laughing and joking, like they were having a good time. Alan Usher, a pathologist, described Zena Dawson's injuries to the court. Her nose and jaw had been broken, her eyes were black, and her face swollen and bruised. Despite being tied up, 
markings on her arms showed she tried to defend herself. There was also a contusion to the victim's body that the pathologist thought could have been made by a large ring. In total, 37 injuries had been found on her body. The cause of Zena Dawson's death was concluded to be shock and hemorrhage. Detective Inspector Brian Stevens spoke of the scratches on the face of one of the suspects when he was arrested. The detective said James Winter's cheeks had marks on them that looked as though someone had clawed his face. He also had a scratch on his thumb. However, Winter categorically denied that the marks were made by Zena Dawson when she was fighting for her life. He rejected the suggestion that the minor injuries were made by Zena Dawson, although the reasons behind why he got them changed throughout his interviews. The explanations were never consistent. At first he claimed to have obtained them in a drunken scuffle. While being questioned a second time, Winter then said he got into a blazing argument with his wife about his drinking and gambling. According to Winter, the scratches were self-inflicted. He used a razor to self-harm after the altercation. Another of the defendants, Guy Moore, chose not to give evidence in his own defence. A week into the trial, it was revealed the last of the suspects, Jacob O'Neill, had a serious criminal history. Despite being only 23, a couple of years earlier, O'Neill had been convicted of manslaughter. On a night out in Nuneaton, he had been involved in a fight outside a pub which resulted in a death. O'Neill got off lightly, only being given a 12-month sentence for the crime. His counsel pointed out that the victim died after a single punch in a pub argument. The disagreement erupted over nothing more than music, and O'Neill struck the other man directly in the face. He crumpled unconscious and never woke up. When Jacob O'Neill addressed the court, he denied attacking Zena Dawson, saying, I don't hit old ladies. I am a good Christian man. In police interviews, Jacob O'Neill had told investigators that he didn't know what happened to Zena. He admitted that he was involved in the burglary of her home, although he had no idea how she died. He went upstairs to rifle through her belongings, and when he came back down, the pensioner had been beaten to death. In James Winter's defence, his counsel Norman Jones QC did not speak favourably of his client. He may be a loathsome man, Jones said, but he isn't violent or a murderer. Winter's counsel admitted that his client had a minor conviction for violence, 
Still, Norman Jones QC directed the blame from Winter, saying he was dragged in to a pub fight. The court was told that it was James Winter that had visited Zena Dawson's home before. He discovered she lived alone when he tried to sell her some carpet. It was him that told the others she had the money they wanted for the night out. But Winter said he did not kill her. On insisting his client had nothing to do with the murder, Norman Jones QC honestly admitted his client's involvement in passing on information about elderly people who lived on their own. Quote, His pattern of trickery is to sell carpets and identify the places where elderly people live. Old folks can easily be tricked this way. Also, old people are not good at identification and it is easy to run away from them. James Winter also admitted when questioned that he had previously been sentenced to three years in prison for burglary after he broke into the house of a pensioner that he had tried to sell carpets to. When asked if he had attacked Zena Dawson, he replied, Definitely not. Winter said he went to pieces when he read in a newspaper about the hunt for Zena's murderer. According to Winter, he planned to commit suicide by cutting his wrists in a London hotel room, but he backed out, as he, quote, never had the nerve. Winter pointed the finger at his friend and co-accused Guy Moore, claiming he had been the one to punch the old lady in the face. Interestingly, the pathologist was not aware when he noticed a significant injury to Zena Dawson, possibly caused by a ring, that James Winter permanently wore a similarly shaped piece of gold jewellery on one of his fingers. He was wearing it in the dock and the entire time he was in custody, since it could not be removed. The trial lasted just under two weeks. On Wednesday, July 9th, 1986, the judge, Mr Justice Tucker, described Zena Dawson's murder as a brutal and sustained attack, adding, the motive was to steal her life savings and squander it on a night of drinking. The jury felt that each of the defendants... James Patrick Winter, Guy Anthony Moore and Jacob O'Neill were each as culpable as the other. They were all found guilty of murder. Sentencing them to life in prison, Mr Justice Tucker said, I consider each of you dangerous, cruel and unpredictable. Winter, Moore and O'Neill were each sentenced to a minimum of 20 years behind bars for Zena Dawson's murder. All three had other charges relating to burglaries for which they were also sentenced. James Winter received an additional 10 years that was to be served concurrently. O'Neill and Moore were handed a further six years each. 
So where are we now? There were no further mentions of Zena Dawson's murder in the press once the three men responsible were convicted. That was until June 2003. The BBC published a brief news article reporting that James Winter had absconded from a men's open prison at HMP Layhill in Gloucestershire. The Avon and Somerset police strongly encouraged the public that if they saw then 44-year-old Winter, not to approach him, and instead immediately call 999. The description released to the public said James Winter was, quote, five feet nine inches tall with thinning grey hair and blue eyes. He has a scar on the right side of his neck. In the years before and the years since, many prisoners had taken the opportunity to abscond from open prisons when they got the chance. Seldom was it a big news story like the escape of James Winter. It has been over three and a half decades since the murder of Zena Dawson. Although not a matter of public record, the culprits have most likely been released from prison. Their present whereabouts are unknown. Thank you for listening, and a special thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. This year, They Walk Among Us will appear at CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event. CrimeCon is coming to London on Saturday the 25th and Sunday the 26th of September. You can learn from leading criminologists, hear from the families and survivors, delve deeper into unsolved crimes and meet your favourite true crime podcasters. Tickets are on sale now at crimecon.co.uk and make sure to use the promo code TWAU at checkout to receive not only a special 10% discount, but you can pick up either an exclusive t-shirt or tote bag which you can collect directly from us during the convention. Head to crimecon.co.uk and don't forget to use the promo code TWAU for 10% off. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.